a cricketing view an irregular podcast about cricket and other things hello and welcome to a new episode of a cricketing view podcast uh, my guest today is tim wigmore uh, he's here to talk about a book he's written about how elite athletes are made welcome back tim it's great to have you oh yeah thanks for having me again uh so this is your third book right tim uh yeah but they're all half books so count it as uh one and a half books rather than three i think so your co-author in this book is mark williams who's the leading sports scientist uh who's uh in demand across sports not just uh football and i as i understand he, he was famously invited by the brazilians after the 2014 world cup uh is that, am, I, am i right in thinking that or is that just something i read on the internet no no that's right yeah he he yeah. Uh, they invited to give some advice on on how to improve improve uh, and so on so how did the idea of doing this book come about um so it was sort of mark uh wanted for a while to do something that was kind of in some ways a kind of a synthesis distillation of his his lifetime's work um and then he he um sort of taught you know he and then we got in touch we were introduced by Matthew Said uh, kindly um and then we we were introduced and then sort of it's a case of you know t- chatting to Mark and you know working what you know trying to get that into a proposal and, and the idea really was to um rather than this just be an academic book you know to write it as a popular science book so you know doing lots of original uh, interviews and stuff and and you know having a, a narrative and, and everything um so yeah it's it's sort of yeah it's it's about the you know what makes elite athletes and that's and we we tell that through you know individual stories and then the kind of uh, and weaving in the science in and around that Yes, I I quite enjoyed uh, the the way you, the book is constructed as a as a combination of a survey of the the state of the art in the literature and in the in the in the professions of psychology and sports science and then uh, and even in some cases developmental psychology in part 1 of the book and then with you know actual interviews of you know some of the greatest players in so many different sports. So I mean what well, there are lots of lots of interesting subjects in this book. Uh but basically you've organized it in 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 three parts basically. One is part 1 is what I would call you your, your nature versus nurture debate broadly. Uh part 2 is about uh uh all the interesting stuff which uh animates twitter conversations. but done in a very scholarly way uh it 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 deals with choking and it deals with you know clutch plays and you know important uh how, what what differentiates the great player from the good player uh and part 3 is about training and preparation and and how why things are advancing you know so so i want to actually start with a with a sort of a synoptic question uh which is that in the book there's this idea that uh the elite level of sport is becoming more elite with each generation right so for instance uh the the degree of like physical basic physical characteristics required to be a great sprinter today are different from or and more specialized than what they were say 50 years ago right so can you talk about that and can you talk about what what that mean how how that shapes what it means to be elite today as opposed to you know in our parents generation yeah look i think that that's really interesting and that's that's right i think what what we're seeing we're seeing what well, obviously athletes are more professional than ever scouting and talent id is more advanced than ever um so athletes are giving themselves the best possible chance and obviously the the finances in elite sport also means that you know a kid now is going to um try and you know more well, more kids anyway will try and give 
you know, being professional, they're absolutely everything. Whereas a few generations ago, you know, those incentives were not nearly as strong. Um, and in a lot of sports, in the Olympic sports, you know, yeah, they had to be uh, athletes had to be had to had to be amateurs. So they wouldn't make any money at all. So effectively, you had sport being limited to those who could afford afford to do it. Um, mm. Now that's that is not really that's not the case. So sport has become more 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 democratic. It's opened up, and therefore, you know, probably more people. You know, people want to say that. <laughs> there's sort of a saying that more more people probably aspire to be as good at life messy is uh, at his thing than have aspired to do anything in in history i think that that's that possibly is true um so sport is incredibly competitive and it's it's yeah it's insane you know we have if you kind of look at the the num just kind of the, the numbers of kids who who are doing sport you sport and how few of them become elite you know there's there's some incredible starts you know so yes. one, you know one every 12,000 children who play basketball um they go on to be professional um yes. and that's just being professional not not being the absolute best of the sport um yeah. in England, you know only 180 out of 1.5 million players who play organized football each year become go on to play in the, the premier league so that's the success rate of 0.01 percent so yeah. it's phenomenally difficult to get there. And, and, and it's also that, you know, enormous resources are, are, are being invested in this across the world in, in, in small ways and big ways, right, right from, uh, you know, the, the investment in neighborhoods and neighbor, neighborhood sporting facilities to, you know, someplace, a place like Britain where, you know, millions and millions in lottery money goes to specifically preparing, uh, you know, Olympic level competitors. Uh, and and one 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 interesting thing uh, I'd like to tease out here is is what it's doing, what this is doing to the gap between like the very top sportsmen and you know the enthusiasts. You know, and increasingly it seems to me that you know that gap is sort of widening beyond comprehension. Uh, is that is that is that is that fair or is that just is that just my perception no no that that's spot on because the resources being given to those at the top are bigger than ever before you know improvements in things like diet and sleep in kind of analytics that they're, they're massive and giving athletes such important advantage so actually the gap between your your kind of good local recreational player and your you know good professional let alone uber elite player is i think that that's risen and it and it will continue to rise because the time and resources spent to basically help those at the top extract every iota of of their their talent um so it's becoming elite sport compared to you know good good recreational sport it's becoming more and more 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 distinct really i mean even um you even the gap i'd argue you know between lowly professional and high professional for example in in football you know that is getting higher and higher and also just i i I think actually one funny way of thinking about it but the kind of level of performance and elite you know the top athletes produce on their bad days it seems to me like that variability has got so much less than it it used to be that even on their worst days they are still delivering a certain level of of performance um And, and actually everything has been been done. You know, the reason you have these you know, personalized sleep programs, personalized starts and so on, it's all to take out that variability, to remove as far as possible the, kind of a, a chance in how some will perform on a, on a given day. Um, and actually with, with Team GB, UK Sport, you know, a lot of what they, they were doing, that their work is, it's tailored years out on how will an athlete peak at the Olympics. Um, yeah. And actually, they credit a lot of their success um, with the the number of athletes who produce their year's best being in the Olympic Games, and that's that's risen massively. So it's actually a level of understanding what it takes not just to improve performance, but to peak when it matters the most as well. I mean, and and it's not it's becoming something that like it's not just that I want you to be the best athlete you can be or the best footballer you can be or or the best it's that i want you to prepare so that 
if you're a footballer, you're at your very best in March and April and May, right? And and that if you're an Olympic athlete, you your 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 trajectory is designed so that you're peaking right at when the Olympics are. So it's it's sort of a very, I mean, the goal orientation is one way to put it, but I mean, this 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 seems to be something. Uh, that there seems to be an element of commodification in this, isn't there? Yeah, right. I think that's right, and I think um, you know this creates problems as well because, if in some ways, the athletes are kind of they're they can almost be kind of reduced to a kind of a, a data point rather than a, a human being. That's always the, the danger, isn't it? That yeah. They're just kind of cogs in this huge, huge machine, and um, I think that's we we are, we're seeing more and more. You know, athletes talk about their m- mental health problems and so on, and and I, I yeah, I don't think those are going to going to go away. You know, even though more is more now is being is being done on that, but ultimately, you know, what is necessary to reach and maintain these levels of performance is asking a, a massive amount. You know, it's probably it's beyond the scope of of most of us even if we had the talent just to be able to put in those levels of commitment and maintain them year after year and and this is this is especially unique to 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 sport right because let's face it i mean unlike unlike if you want to be like if you want to be a doctor or an engineer or an architect or a lawyer uh what you do at the age of seven or eight is probably not that important Right, but if you want to if you want to be an Olympic athlete, or if you if you ever have a chance to be anywhere close to being an Olympic level athlete, or you want to play Test cricket, or you want to play, you know, in the in 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 the Premier League, or for you want to play for England, uh, it's unthinkable to do that if you start at 17 or 18, right? So these are people who have already, I mean, their entire life is is very different from say yours or mine isn't it by the time they're 30 yeah i mean this i suppose this gets us into the debate on specialization which is one of the yes. issues we're addressing that's, in the book and I, I um that's what i was going to get, get to and i think the the idea so all the evidence that we've accumulated i it suggests the idea you have to you know specialize when you're 10 11 that is it's not true and in many ways it can be counterproductive and dangerous you know you see athletes who specialize earlier are more likely to suffer from burnout they're more likely to suffer from injury because of of overuse um and even mental health issues so yeah early specialization you know you see it ridiculously you know you see kids age nine or ten being told to play other sports that that's that's ridiculous but it is also true that in you know, to reach the pinnacle in most most sports, especially sports which are more mass participation um, yeah. and have a kind of more more variability to them. So you, you'd look at a sport like football or basketball or cricket even has high variability. You need to practice. You, so there's a lot of kind of the value of game intelligence and stuff is, is big. Whereas, and you can reach the top in lots of different ways, i.e. the relative importance of physique is a bit less than in a sport like rowing where physical attributes are so 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 important that and also it's not you know we talked with Helen Glover who won an Olympic medal gold after she'd done it about four out four thousand hours in her entire life and she didn't um didn't start rowing until the age of 21 so clearly specialization is not always necessary but I don't, but there was nothing like Helen Glover's story in football. It's yeah. not really, you know, not really in cricket of a kid not, you know, not playing until they're 20 and then going on to be elite. So, as you said, um, does, you know, future elite athlete sport generally is a massive part of their childhood. Um, and actually, as well, um, often the hours, they might spend a lot of hours across a variety of sports. And those, you know, I, I, I believe that hours spent in other sports still tend to help an athlete in their primary sport because it's still developing their their motor skills it's still very good for their psychological skills as well and actually i think i think often for kids who are very very good and dominant in one sport there's a huge value 
of playing a game where they're not they're not always the best because it actually it forces them to develop skills and kind of mental strength that they then need later on in, in their journey because actually if you're just beating up on on other kids well after a after a, a while that that sort of stunts your skill development because you're not being exposed to these new these new challenges and you're not being actually forced to develop to to, to keep up um and in fact it's that the importance of kind of playing with with people who are bigger than you best than you that helps to explain why younger siblings have a big advantage in, in sport as we talk about um in our first chapter yeah i mean one of the interesting things about in your discussion of you know what you call diversification uh is this idea that not only does diversification help uh, with you know acquiring skills acquire becoming better at your ultimately becoming better at your primary sport but it also helps you psychologically because it it sort of puts you in many different competitive situations and you know it gets you used to losing and and that it seems is a really important developmental uh <coughs> developmental stage you know learning how to lose learning how to compete those yeah, thoughts and learning and learning how to actually have a defeat and how to kind of analyze that defeat and learn from it yeah. get people say you learn more from failure it's a cliche but it it is true um and so yeah, that ability to kind of take a to, defeat to kind of diagnose it and then to work on that the next time um and that that is such an important thing for for children to, to gain their sports and so if you're you know so a good example of of some athletes who don't get this is if you're if you're old for your year and you're kind of physically developed as well so both that you're you know 10 11 months older than other kids in your team and you're you've grown earlier anyway so you have this sort of double advantage then you have been in a position where you're probably bigger than you know your teammates and opponents you're probably stronger than them as well so whether this is football you can outrun them in cricket you can you can smash the ball further or whatever um mm. which is great great for you up to a point but actually that's not going to develop your skills particularly quickly um and actually you don't need to develop those other skills you don't need to develop the psychological skills and so we talk about the the, the relative age effect in in sport which is it's quite well known but what's not well known really is the underdog effect that we talk about which is of yes super elite athletes the very very best you know ones who win mvp awards and so on actually a hard share of those are young for their selection year and yeah. essentially the reason is they've had it harder kind of throughout their journey so they've had to to kind of compensate with other skills uh, yeah yeah both physical and mental and then when they reach a point where suddenly they're playing with kids who aren't bigger and stronger than them they've got those those other skills more than their opponents and that gives them an advantage and so with with Har- harry kane's a good example of this you know he was released by arsenal as a kid he was not doing very well at tottenham and he was almost released by them as well and he yeah. was born in july and it was a late physical maturer and obviously he's now worth a few hundred million so it it also highlights the pitfalls of prematurely selecting and discarding talent um which again links to specialization which is actually sometimes if you specialize you might specialize in the wrong sport and by that i mean well you might be 10 11 and you might be really really tall for you, for your age so you you think i'm going to be a basketball player but actually maybe four or five years later you haven't really grown and you'd have been better off at another sport and but you've kind of gone too hard too too quickly that's a real that's a danger i think if you specialize too early because you also have you also make these two other points which is one is that uh younger siblings uh, tend to become have a better chance of becoming elite sportsmen than the older sibling uh and that uh, medium sized towns uh are very very good places to grow up if you want to be a uh, an 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 elite elite athlete in any sport and and i think sort of both of those things to me seem to tie into this idea that you know they make diversity uh more readily available i mean as in sporting the opportunity to play many different sports and also having an older sibling is you know you have less choice about you know what you want to do you do whatever your older older brothers are doing right you sort of follow them around and you know you want to compete with them and they're bigger than you and you know they're better than you and that's a, that's a huge advantage to be have that 
to compete with, right? Yeah, exactly. So in terms of like learning more from failure, you're going to, if you're playing with an old sibling who's two, three, four years older than you, you're going to be losing most of the time. And so you're going to learn from more from that experience. But also when you're playing with them, you cannot, that you will not be able to physically be, you know, physically out outdo them. So you've got to develop skills and tricks and mental strength that they just don't need to have because they can hit them, hit the ball further than you or, or whatever. Um, and the other thing is, if you're a younger sibling, it, it comes from parents as well. So parents, you know, lots of literature, parents are more relaxed with a with younger siblings, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so it tends to be with younger siblings tend to get a license to kind of play outside and play informally, which is tends to be such a big, a big part of an athlete's journey at a, a younger age. They just they just get more, more exposure at an earlier age as well. Um so it works in a lot of different 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 ways, but I think that the mental strength as well. I mean, there was quotes from maybe Villiers who who played uh, a lot, you know, childhood games with his two older brothers, and they kind of kind of you know he says you know my my brothers were merciless, they were monsters, there were always a lot of tears. Yeah, and that's you know that was obviously a huge part of his journey because they were always better than him, and he had to find any way. So it may be you know. So, his older brothers were six and nine years older, which is which is actually which is a lot. But it may be that effectively he was only three or four years behind them in terms of skill. Well, that actually meant he was a few years above them in in real terms. And suddenly, when he gets to the stage where he's he's playing with with kids who aren't bigger and stronger than him, he's got all these brilliant skills that he he can, he can bring to bear then. So that, yeah. as you said, the sibling effect is is huge. And and the other. Uh, point you mentioned was the the medium-sized town effect, which is basically that um, if you're from a medium-sized town, um, you have far, far, far more chance of becoming an elite athlete. So in the US, if you're born in a town with a population between 50,000 and 100,000, you have 15 times more chance of becoming a professional athlete than children from other areas. So 15 times, that's a massive, massive advantage. Um, kind of an unfathomable, really. That was one of the biggest shocks shocks from the book just kind of learning about that and also how massive it is and and the reason for for the medium size size town effect really it was a few reasons it's you're in a community where there tends to be you kind of have the best of a rural and urban existence so you have you have the kind of the space of the countryside but you also have a kind of high quality facilities you might get in a city you have a level of competition you might get in a city so you have mm -hmm. those together you also have again there's kind of quite community spirit and that probably means that parents are more relaxed about their kids their kids playing outside and stuff which which can accelerate development and also i think um you're kind of less likely to get lost from the system so actually the dropout rates in sport are, are lower in the in medium-sized and small towns compared to in, in big towns because kids kind of don't get lost in the same way. Also, you just have more time to do sport because you don't have to travel so far between. You have more time to do chance to do a range of sports as opposed to just doing one, one and kind of more pressure to specialise. And then you're spending an hour in the car, car going home. And also in in these sorts of of areas, um, there's often quite a strong tradition of, of you know of kids who are you know of promising kids then entering in, into into adults uh, sport at a young yeah. age so we talked with jeff lawson from Waggle australia. australia which has produced a huge amount you know famously had both mark taylor and michael slater um both australia's opening pair um they were both from Wagga Wagga, from Wagga Wagga, and that's a town of fifty thousand, which which kind of embodies a mid-sized town effect it's produced you know huge huge range of, of leading athletes um yeah and we talked with jeff lawson he says one of the big facts when he, when he was 13 he was playing you know adults men's cricket which is someone you know what we hear about kind of great cricket in australia that that's a very harding environment we talked about those kind of mental skills that you get as a younger sibling it's massive for all of those things and actually playing with with older with adults that's actually that can be better or at least doing that sometimes than just playing you know, with kids of your your own age, um, I think that's that was probably what's well, a big lesson. I think for those involved in talent talent development was to take how can you ensure that your best kids are failing and failing enough, and that can be a case of putting them into 
you know, older age groups. It can be a case of putting them in adults teams, all of those sorts of things, or even exposing them to other sports where they're going to, they will fail and have to develop those other skills. So all of those, those things can be ways of, of really of kicking kicking kids on to the, the next level so they develop and rather than just just dominating with kids of their own age and then reaching a point where that they stagnate because they haven't developed enough the the one sort of the one counter example you give is the example of paris right uh which which is basically a huge metropolitan area with a huge uh, immigrant population uh and a very diverse immigrant population well, it's interesting. So, you know, we we I went in there as part of research for, for the book, and and actually, if you look at as a metropolitan area, they're actually better understood as self-sufficient areas because of, of mid-sized towns in their own rights. These, these kids, they don't tend to come from from kind of on. They're not born, you know, they don't grow up on the Seine or anything. These are no. from, these are kind of basically suburb towns. Yeah. Of, often of you know 20 30,000 that would fit you know as mid-sized towns where yeah. again you have all of their sport will often be within a very small small area so they're not it's not the kind of experience of a kid in New York or whatever who's being lugged around different massive different parts of the city it's it's yeah. more often you know a sense of of community with a local sports club and also just being able to play a lot with with their with their friends in informally and stuff um that i think yeah so the the, the magic of the kind of prison suburbs what, what it is I, it, the, the culture of football there is it's so so big and the amount of informal play that kids do is is so massive so you know they're all you know on local pitches in in parks you know between benches and you know anything so just the amount of informal play which yeah. creates athletes are very very streetwise basically very creative very very creative and streetwise have made you think for themselves have done a huge amount of football training but they haven't they haven't just been told what to do by coaches which i think sometimes is what you see in more affluent kind of parts of bigger cities you, you know the parent often you have kids and they might do quite a lot of sport but they'll be doing it in very formal settings yes um, and kind of very good at obeying instructions, not very good at initiative and thinking for themselves. Um, and I think we we think eight of the World Cup of France's World Cup winning squad in 2018 came from the the, the, the Bonheur. So it's a huge, it's an incredible producer of, of talent. And they typically, almost all these players, they've had a huge amount of informal play play growing up, um, and they have this uh, this kind of knowledge of their game and a kind of adaptability as well. That's another thing you get from informal play because you have, you know, you might be playing, you know, a five-a-side game and one of one could have to go home and it's 5v4. Well, actually, that's that's very difficult for the team who who are a man down. You know, you, there might be parts of the pitch that are, are dodgy, so you have to find a way of avoiding it. You know, that you'll be playing with bigger kids, older kids, so, so you have to find ways of dealing with them as, as a when you're younger than them or smaller than them. So it exposes you to far more variables than just playing mm. kind of formula, un, uh, you know, um, formal under 11, under 11 or whatever. And I guess yeah. there'll similarities with cricket in M- Mumbai, for example, where you'll get, you get kids of different age groups mixing and that can be very, very good. Yeah. That's a charge. That's a charge, which is often leveled uh, at, 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 uh, I've heard it leveled at English players, for instance. You know that there's all the whenever there's an English batsman, especially who comes on and you know doesn't do too well at Test level. You know the the one thing that people often say about such players is that they're overcoached. You know this used to be a big thing being said about English players. Uh, you know in the two in the early 2000s and then again in the 13, 14, 15 period. Uh, once the you know the the, the Petersons uh, re- left the scene, uh, but I, I'm not really convinced that you know it applies in this case you know because now England are doing well and they're not saying that anymore you know and then, I mean ha, ha, have you looked at this this situation the the English uh, international 
team, not just tests, but also T20 ODI team uh, situation where, you know, today's England team is all about initiative and all about, you know, an, a, a cultivated approach, you know, which gives them a license to, you know, uh, to go after the bowling and to, to play, you know, assertively. Uh, so that that's you you can't always tell that from watching a player at the international level can you no as in as, as in it may be as in it may be true that some players are overcoached and other players are have the advantage of you know a, a diverse uh, sporting upbringing you know playing with you know many different types of opponents in many different types of sport but you can't really tell that by looking at an international player uh, in a in a test match or in a you know a a, a world cup match or whatever right uh, no i don't think you could you could kind of see someone taking over and say you know he's played hockey or whatever although yeah uh ollie pope he he does sort of credit some of his um yeah. success to, to hockey you know steve smith obviously credits a lot with, to, to tennis. Um, so we do see a, lo- a lot of very successful cricketers. Yeah, yeah. MS Dhoni credits uh, goalkeeping uh, with his wicketkeeping, it seems. Um, but, but I think the interesting thing, you talk about the English cricket batsmen, and they're kind of getting some of what we talked about, you know, that diverse multi-school, multi-skill background. They're getting it almost in a very formal way. And, and yeah. what do I mean by that? I mean, they're going to not just private schools, but some of the most elite schools in the country is, is actually, frankly, wearing and produce most of their top top batsmen now. Uh, Ollie Pope, Zach Crawley both went to incredible schools um, and they both played a kind of a range of sports there. O- Ollie Pope especially was proficient. Um, so in a way, it's kind of almost a top-down way of getting getting the, those advantages. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, um, and just the, the kind of facilities and, and stuff and just the, the amount of, just the amount of, exposure to balls and things um which is one of the big issues for kind of english cricket's ta- uh and its pool of talent is that there's just a lack of cricket and sport generally in in state schools and that that that's you create a situation where i think 45 percent of the england team go from um have come from private schools that's for seven percent of the population so yeah really that's a team that's not there's not it's not equally open to, to players from all backgrounds. Yeah, it's frightening how good they could be if they were found a way to, you know, get that part of the population to also play cricket, you know. <laughs> but I, I want to come to uh, the, the science of the choke, as you call it. Uh, and, and this is a, a particularly interesting subject from my point of view, because I've, I've sort of always... Uh, long wondered why uh, why it is that I mean I've, I've wondered about this from the point of view of you know how how people who watch uh, you know react to results and to games right but it seems from everything I've talked every, every time I talk to some of my our you know our common uh, journalist friends it seems that a lot of this stuff about clutch play and you know scoring when it matters and you know playing in the big game and and all that that is sort of internalized by the players themselves you know so the players also seem to believe in this whole idea of you know mental toughness or whatever other uh, you know euphemism you might apply in you read commonly in the papers you know, but you're, you're, you're in part two, you present a different picture of where that difference between the top, top, top player and the very good player comes from. So, so what do you mean by internalized? Do you mean? In, in the sense that they have all adopted that language, you know, they, they all, they all, you know, in their press interviews and, and all the reporters tell me that, you know, when we talk to the players, they, they talk about you know, clutch players and big game players and this and that a lot more than than we all than you might imagine. You know, whereas you you're talking to all these a lot of these players who are who are expert who 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 are describing a completely different process like Annika Sorenstam or 
you know, yeah. some of these other players who are describing a completely different process about, you know, how they maintain their levels of, you know, high levels. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, for our chapter on, on choking, I mean, choking is a, there's such a taboo to it that actually it's very rare to get people to say, yeah, I choked and this is how I choked and everything. Um, so we talked with Scott Boswell, who bowls this, you know, infamous over in um, the, the Cheltenham and Gloucester trophy final in 2001, which yeah. bowls eight wides or no balls. And it's, it's quite painful to watch, actually. And he, he's very honest about what happens. And he you know, says, I became so anxious, I froze. I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't let, let, let the ball go. And he said, you know, how, you know, I've been bowling my whole life and it's been fine. Now I can't, I can't do it, basically. How's this happened? And so he, he says, basically, he was, he was overly anxious. And almost he, he was stuff that his subconscious would normally be able to, to, to deal with. He was now having to think of consciously. And that created a kind of, yeah, a catastrophic collapse in his performance basically yeah. um so he was so nervous he wasn't able to, to deal with it at all and this was kind of this over that that never ended um and he, he basically says the boss on is he 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 didn't trust his his action his, his skill set so when it was under high pressure it it, it it collapsed um and that is quite a quite a graphic example of choking okay one of the interesting things is in general um when NBA and WNBA players, you know, have free throws at the end of end of games that, that are tight, they're actually more likely to miss than normal, which suggests even the very best athletes, on average, are a little bit affected. You know, so, so NBA players were three percent less are three percent less likely to score free throws at the end of, of tight games, mm-hmm. um, which just in general, athletes are a little bit affected, but clearly the the very best athletes are able to to avoid this. And I think one, one of the crucial things, Annika Sorensen's, you know, one of the best female golfers of all time, she talks about this process of, of disassociating her from the shot and also the shot, the past shot from the next shot. So she, you know, it's, it's an art of being able to kind of analyze what happened in a dispassionate way and then move on to hitting the, the next ball or bowling the next ball, whatever sport, sport it is, as opposed to as Boswell was, one mistake leading on to the other um yeah and the science that you know the, those who are with the best mental with the great most highest levels of mental strength have been shown to be best at responding to negative feedback and using it to improve their performance so it's actually that ability to to diagnose what has happened and learn from it instantly and then to sort of start again you know a sport like golf or or cricket where each or tennis each action is distinct from the last and it's recognizing that you have the chance to actually to start start again so the bad shot that's happened or the bad ball should have no relevance at all on what's about about to happen um and a big but a big reason that often it does you know one bad ball leads to another bad one is players want to rush so you know boswell says he wants to get the over out as quickly as possible and that's exactly the worst thing to do if you're yeah. worried about choking you have to actually have a consistent process that you stick to each time so with with Annika Sorensen she says you know when she was under most pressure she felt this kind of tendency this urge to rush and and actually what what she had to do and did so well was she had a 24 second routine before each each shot and she would make sure she she stuck to it and so yeah. she had this 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 framework and it means again that every every action you're you you enter it from a familiar place so rather than from getting the ball and rushing it you're you're going through the the normal process and that helps to kind of to calm you down as opposed to the danger of, of rushing um and another interesting part of the sort of science of choking actually is in how athletes use their eyes with essentially when athletes are anxious they use their eyes less efficiently and that well often that means they sort of dart their eyes around everywhere yeah. when athletes and when athletes do better under pressure and just better generally they they have what's called a, a quiet eye which is they maintain a kind of a sharper longer fixed focus typically on the target 
or you know, so like a um, in rugby it would be you know a spot often we talked with Dan Carter and he was talked about he'd always look at a, a precise spot he'd find a precise spot in the crowd and he would he would keep his eyes on that and that's a way of maintaining his visual focus as opposed to to kind of darting everywhere and looking around where then you're you're in real in real trouble um and a good example of this is penalty shootouts so yeah. when players take less time and they rush they're more likely to you know studies show they become much less likely to to, to score and actually you know with, with gareth southgate he misses his first penalty in euro 96 but as england manager before the world cup of 2018 england did a huge amount of research we actually have a whole chapter on 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 penalty shootouts because they embody yeah, many of the interesting themes but what part of one of England's takeaways was players had to take a little bit more time and obviously England did that and they they got you they finally ended their hoodie by winning a, a shootout um so none of these are kind of they don't guarantee things but they improve having this this consistent method and process increases your chances in a massive way and I guess the flip side of that is the danger of stereotype threat um which is yes. big relevant for cricket which is this idea that actually when a group becomes preoccupied with a kind of negative image of their own group, it, it develops a life of its own and it then becomes self-perpetuating effectively. So this, you know, the classic study of this is when you, you tell um, a group of women that they're less before taking a test, that women are less good at, at maths than men, than women seem to perform less well on on math tests than if they're told before they're equally they perform equally well um mm. so that so being away being made aware of the stereotype seems to impact whether participants where whether people will adhere to it or not and that definitely seems true of south africa in cricket where yeah the, the it's become more and more an obsession a pre preoccupation and you know the players are all different it's not like you know Lance Guzman and Don are still playing but the, the, you know although the players are all, all different this idea has has permeated so much, and often the players often get very te- tetchy about the, the c word and stuff. But yes, it's it, it Gary Kirsten after 2013 Champions Trophy when he said um, what happened in previous events was a dark mist that hangs over South African cricket, um, and I think that that's honest and that shows just how um, pervasive stereotype can, threat can be and. Uh, how difficult it can be to to get out of the rut, right? Because th- there's, I mean, these are the the choke is a seems to me to be a a really harsh case of a much more common phenomenon, which is that you know, uh, as you as you point out in the book, uh, NBA players do the same skill worse in uh, in 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 the in the towards the end of the game, right? Uh, even in tennis, you see, I mean, Roger Federer wins the 15-40 point less often than he wins the 40-15 point, right? Uh, and then he's the same player, right? And against the same opponents uh, a lot of the time. But it seems to me, from what you're what you describe in the book, that you know the whole the notion of mastery is the ability to minimize the gap between those things. It is to sort of maintain your process and what you do at all times or or for are at a on a on a larger range of situations than you know your opponent you know so uh, you know and and this gets to this idea of expertise you know and there's a in 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 the old sort of literature on expertise which comes from you know converse discussions about the computational theory of mind and uh, you know the debate in, in philosophy about you know whether the mind is a computer and in what sense it is a computer. And there was this philosopher uh, Hubert Dreyfus who argued that well, basically, you know, when you learn when you master how to drive a car, you know, it's not that you know when you're a beginner when you drive a car you go through the steps right. They they give you a series of steps and every time you get before the steering wheel. You follow all the steps. You check the mirror. You check the uh, check the belt. You know. You put your hands at ten and two, and you do all all the. You you go through the whole ritual, right? But by the time you you sort of learn to drive the car, you that that ritual becomes subconscious. That doesn't mean that you're following those same steps 
much faster and much more smoothly it it means that you have mastered that process and you've become and and it it, is, it has become an automatism in a sense uh and it seems to me that in the boswell example there's an element of well i start worrying about every little thing in my action you know that's what it means to lose your action right to for boswell it means that he's now worried about everything he's worried about his stride he's worried about his balance he's worried about you know whether he's losing uh, whether he's going to overstep all the worries are have come to the front of his mind and and that that's what it means to sort of lose your to, to let the anxiety get the better of you right yeah so the stuff that's natural is now alien and kind of impossible yeah. and you're you're now you're sort of trying to sort of fall back on your training and go step by step and that's fatal that means you can't do that at that level and 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 survive yeah because you you're It's, overthinking things basically and and that's also in you also sort of allude to this in your discussion about speed which i found was a very wonderful part of the book which uh, and i i have come across some of this literature before about you know how a uh, batsman never rarely still watch the ball right onto the bat you know like oh, for yeah, the yeah. last absolutely yeah there's a, we we have a chapter on how to hit a ball in 0.5 seconds and we yeah that, that applies to tennis and it applies yeah. to baseball and and cricket and in all of those basically you you cannot there is not enough time like the the advice of watch the ball it's like the worst advice ever it's impossible yeah. if you're facing we talked with, with Mike Hussey and he was like you you cannot watch the ball because it, it's it's too quickly so you have to preempt it and the way yeah. you you do that is you look at cues from the bowler because there's other they've done um so in baseball they they did studies where where hitters were wearing glasses and they went um yeah they they went blind when the ball was like a certain uh, distance yeah, away 0.1 yeah 0.15 seconds and it made yeah. it didn't make any difference to how well they hit the ball because by that point it's too late anyway um so the point is you have to be able to to preempt what's going to happen and, and that's a case of you know as a batsman you 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 look at well you obviously you know the bowler well and then you um from the way they they shape up you can tell is it going to be a yorker bounce a good length and the way they they release the ball and i mean this is why actually we think white balls could be so hard to face jofra arch would be a good example of someone who doesn't have an obvious tell about when he's going to bowl yeah. a, a, and especially obviously in the ashes when he was kind of fairly new on the scene it, it was incredibly effective because batsmen just didn't have a way of lining up um for how quick you, uh, of lining up where the ball was going to be yeah that's the a lot of batsmen say that about jaspreet bumrah as well because of his you know slightly odd action yeah absolutely so it's again and and that applies um to to tennis as, as well so you see so Pete Sampras had a got a yeah. brilliant, brilliant piece of advice that he told us was basically when he was a kid he'd ever a tennis he would throw the ball up in the air get get you know he would be mid 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 service motion and his coach would bargain him you know line or wide so either go you know either either hit hit the ball down the middle either serve it down the middle or serve out wide or or body um yeah. serve it in the body and and that that means that he has to develop uh, the ability to serve or do all of those serves without um without any prior cues in his service motion um because it's too it was too late by that point to change his thing and and that obviously means that when you're facing him it's incredibly difficult because you can't use you can't read someone's serve from how they're lining up uh whereas actually tennis you know where you see some very good tennis players sorry um often in the top of tennis it's not players with a very very with a very very fast serves who are you know at the very top of the, the world rankings and stuff and that's obviously because well a the rest of their games might not be as good but but we see i i think even if you could serve incredibly quickly if players top elite players can can read your serve that gives them a little bit that buys them a little bit bit more time to be able to return it so yeah deception is is so important at the um 
sort of apex of, of sport. There was another part of the Sampras story which I found really interesting. You know, you you write about how uh, Michael Chang would was really really good at reading Sampras's serve, uh, and you also have another story where you talk about Andre Agassi being really good at reading Boris Becker's serve uh, and becoming good at reading Boris Becker's serve. But then uh, Chang says that well, Sampras then developed other kinds of serves. You know, because I, I and I, susp- I and that that sort of gives you an insight into what makes Sampras a great player in a sense. You know, that 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 sort of tells you what puts Sampras right at the top. It's that, you know, he's constantly learning new stuff, and he has this ability to learn new things and to master new things. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think we, I think in general, as sort of lovers of, of sport, as watchers of sport, we underrate this massively. We yeah. we often have an idea that an athlete arrives age twenty and they're kind of they, they'll improve on the edges, but they're kind of fully formed. But actually, as you as you said, that top athletes they keep on developing new skills, and and that they're not just their athlete their self age twenty is not just you know, 95% version of their peak, you know, who's a bit less consistent or whatever, they can develop fundamentally new new skills. And indeed, they, you know, they have to, to keep on go- on advancing, to stay where they are. Um, and I think that's a real kind of hallmark of the very best athletes is that ability to keep on developing and, and actually have that analytical, that kind of ability to analyze their games and work out what are they, they less good at and how can how can they improve. And they're really good at learning new things. You know, that's not that's not, that's not really not everybody is good at learning new things. Whereas these athletes are, some of these athletes, some of these top athletes are, you know, really really good at mastering new things quickly. You know, I mean, you can see it. You can see it in Sampras, and you can see it in Federer. And and Federer made this point. I I, I listened to an interview of his. From last year, he gave an interview to uh, the the editor of the New Yorker, uh, David Remnick, and uh, you know Remnick was saying something about well, you know you're you're mentally tougher than your opponent. And Federer sort of, I was very surprised, but he he his response to that was well, it's actually not that. It's that I am better at more things than my opponent, so I have more ways to stay in a point uh, than my opponent does. And that's what keeps me in the game longer, you know. And that's what makes it appear as though I am mentally tougher, you know. And it can't be that you know Federer knew all of those things when he was 18, right? I mean, those are things he has cultivated over the last 17, whatever, now 20 years almost, right? And and that, that that's something that you you sort of rarely hear about in uh, in in the in the sports pages or in the in the in the color commentary you know i mean i mean our in cricket our sort of the canonical example of this is is you know Shane Warne every series he would come up with a new delivery and the story was that well most of them were all really made up like they were not really new deliveries yeah i think i say i think the story of steve smith recently is is quite a good example of how you know a player can develop so much, you know, after arriving at the, the, the top level. Um, and I mean, Steve Smith was a joke and now he's, you know, some people say he's the second best bouncer of, of all time. Um, not yeah. a debate. We go down, I'm sure now, but, but it's, I would say uh, that. Well, on, no, no, it's, on it's current evidence on the, on current evidence, it's, it's an arguable point. Yes, I think. Um, but the, the, the point is he's reached a level which people did not think he had, he he had him in it. He had in him at all, and and obviously he's he's just he's managed to keep on developing, keep on advancing. You know, we actually um, like his stance. His stance has you know it changed from his kind of arrival in Test cricket. In fact, became more idiosyncratic, yeah. more kind of you're 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 not you were told you weren't you weren't meant to do it. Um, so it's been inter- it's been an interesting kind of case study in how. I guess yeah, how players can improve, but also how they they can improve through not taking the so-called right path and you know actually following an individual method. I, I I want to sort of ask you a cricket specific question here, and it has to do with coaching 
and it sort of alludes to the you know the chapter on coaching in your book uh, which is that you know i've talked to a few coaches now and you know they the impression you get talking to them is that you know there's this whole generational shift going on in cricket where different generations of players in the same team are differently receptive to new methods of coaching and you know new and and the new directions in which control is shifting especially in T20 where the coach has a lot of you know over by over control and you know tactical control and and what have you uh what is how do you what how do you make sense of that is that something that you know is a phase and eventually in cricket people will get used to it and it will be like baseball where you know the 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 coach is accepted as the as the boss or you know is there something about you know the individual and the the tension between the individual and the team which will help cricket which will keep cricket the way it's it's been so far in the 2000s and such so no it's a very yeah interesting sort of topical point i th- i think the direction of travel is pretty clear which is coach mm. with what i mean we're, we're we're having this chat as delhi have just kind of been handling the ipl final but um even so uh ricky ponting's kind of method as a coach which is very interventionist as, it, as he says you know he sees well, he sees t20 cricket as, as basically 240 matchups and the team who can win the most of those and actually most importantly almost to get the right matchups as much as possible is the one who's going to come out on top more often than not and right and so sit yeah so that's that that seems pretty clear that the future cricket will look more like that my sense though is that it will not end up quite as far as football along that along that path um mm. it will be it will be a lot more like it than it is now but the kind of the vantage point of the captain and 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 the wicketkeeper as well actually um and a sort of certain gut feel that you can only maybe get from you know facing the balls and stuff in the game um that that will keep cricket a bit distinct to to, to football but yeah i mean i think players i think there's a generational thing where players are pretty pretty happy with coaches being more more involved and actually often some welcome it to be honest i think that kind of clarity it can be and i think for for coaches clearly the the challenge is to well it's a balance between good information not too much information that overwhelms uh overwhelms players and from a skill development point point of view actually you know one of the the big takeaways uh from my book is the importance of random training so training with more variables is so much better than just repetitive training so um you know so rather than facing you know 500 balls that are all um just 500 balls in the nets and you can do what you like with them it's much better to to break those balls down and say okay we these balls we are trying you know you can only hit to the leg side or something, you know, with yeah. you a certain field and you have to hit the ball around that or whatever. That that is going. All the research that's got development suggests that more focused method it will actually keep training less stale as well and kind of more, yeah. more dynamic. And if you're just repeating things again and again and again, that's you can only might kind of maintain your level, but it's unlikely to improve it and again you're not going to be exposed to as many variables as, as possible and then another crucial thing is actually trying to make coaching trying to make training even harder than the game itself um so we talked with elena del don who's um well one of the best ever women's basketball players of all time but she's also yeah. the best three throw shooter uh, in men's or women's basketball of all time and she talks about how she always um well she she has to le- end each session with with 10 free throws um that are su- successful in a row she practices three throws the most when she is at her most tired as well um in training and that actually means that again you talked about it links choking a little bit um and it means that when she's taking a free throw and she's tired at the end of a big playoff game well obviously that the, the game itself will be a unique experience but the 
the the fact of taking a free throw when she's tired, at least that's not different as well. She's used to that. So again, that's kind of that's reducing some of what's new about a high pressure situation in a real match and therefore the amount that, that can go wrong and it means her performance is more likely to be able to hold up under that sort of pressure. Yeah, that's yeah, I mean it's a uh, I have this image of, you know, especially in the T20 which is only 240 balls, I have this image of uh, all the IPL franchises knowing exactly which matchups they desire and which boundaries they're going to defend on each matchup. Uh, and if they're batting, then which boundaries they're going to look to target for each matchup, for each of the 240 deliveries, you know. And I can imagine someone like Kohli or Smith or you know some of these captains, like absolutely having mastered that that material before they get onto the pitch, you know, because you know that that's just you can just imagine them being you know highly, highly, highly motivated to be very, very well prepared uh, for for those things. You know, and but there's also I mean I wonder in T20 we're going to reach the point where everyone you're right everyone knows the right matchup and and the opponents also know the matchup that the other team wants to kind of act on or whether there's a value in in doing the anti matchup thing at at, at some point you know so to give a test yeah. and if if your best serve is down the line on thirty forty yeah but your opponent knows that. And he knows it so well that actually sometimes maybe you're better maybe you're better off doing your less good serve because it won't be quite as good, but you'll have but the value of surprise will actually yeah. outweigh a slightly inferior serve. And so I think they will as much as we can go down that road, the value of doing something which isn't expected, there will also be a value in that as well. Yes, I mean I, it, as 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 you as as sort of expectations are catalogued so systematically you do wonder what second order effects that's going to have right so i mean if you know if you're bowling to a batsman and and your your premise of your line of attack or defense as a c20 we should probably call it, it you know is he can't he can't hit the ball over short fine leg he he can't he doesn't have those shots well actually if you take on that shot they might you know they might not think you're capable of doing it but Maybe, maybe, maybe you can pull it off, and it might be that because they don't think you're capable of it, they give you actually more margin for error than they would a batsman who they respected more on that shot. So does it actually become a better option for you if you're inferior at it in a in a funny sort of way? Yeah, yeah. It it would be it would be interesting, uh, especially if we could see what the expectations are. But that 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 sort of probably just you know if 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 the audience of the of the cricket broadcast was me, then that would be interesting. I'm not really sure it would be interesting for everybody. But I mean, speaking of all this, uh, your chapter on Barcelona was quite eye-opening uh, to me. You know, I mean, you're basically describing uh, a club which, you know, turns its players into, you know, actors in a video game, and they're, they're tracking them all the time in all sorts of ways yeah um so that was written by my colleague mark who he ah. visited, uh la masia so he he would have been a bit better place to chat about it than, than me but mm. um essentially you know it's it's looking at the ways in which barcelona are trying to kind of be at the cutting edge of future developments in football and in sport more more generally and a big part of that is kind of yeah empowering their athletes into thinking thinking more more deeply and into developing their their kind of ability to analyze the game and work out what's happening and that's using things like you know virtual reality looking at uh, player tracking um things like that and, and working on actually how to how to there's some interesting cognitive some number of football clubs have these kind of they're looking at improving the cognitive functions of their players, so their decision making under pressure, and that can be done with with video games as well as uh, on the pitch yeah. itself. And obviously, with with the brain, you don't have the finite limit of he can only train on the football pitch for three hours, he can only bowl eight toes if he's a fast bowler or whatever on on in the nets. So you actually have, I think, potentially there's a lot more that can be done here, and and you can actually you can do this 
for a lot more than you can do the physical training. And it's obviously decision-making under pressure is such a fundamental part of what it takes to be an elite athlete. Yes, I mean, and that's sort of, I know when I read the Barcelona chapter, I, I sort of decided that, you know, we had to start this this conversation at the gap, the gap between sort of the best and the next level. Uh, you know, and, you know, if, if, if you if someone who plays for Barcelona is going to have that level of you know that level of training and that level of facility, then you know the player in the second division is you know two years of that that gap is going to sort of increase the gap between the second division player and the Barcelona player tremendously, isn't it? Yeah, that that's definitely right, and I think it also shows that again that's something we I think we can underestimate is. This is not obvious, but I think we can underestimate in the kind of popular media how focused leading teams are on improving their players. So they're not seeing even a 25-year-old athlete. They're not seeing him as a kind of fixed asset. Yeah. yeah, they're not seeing him as a finished article. Also they, they, they have a kind of more optimistic sense of what his um, his ceiling can be as an athlete. They don't they don't put a kind of artificial limit on this. And actually, there was a book called the MVP machine, which is good on baseball. And it's basically arguing that, you know, a generation ago, the inefficiency was in identifying talent and identifying players' value. Now the yeah. inefficiency is in how well, you know, two teams can take players who are equally good and what the players look like after a few years. And that's to do with improvement. And actually to take this conversation back back to cricket and T20 is, you know, the, the big, big thing for me is, you know, Mumbai Indians, you know, have a, you know, the best, T20 team in the world, fantastic. But are they doing enough? And does a does the current structure of the sport allow them to do enough with their players for the nine and a half, nine and a half months a year when they're not playing the IPL? And I yeah. think for any you know T20 franchise who's serious about the kind of sporting integrity and the kind of the value of winning as opposed um, of of winning cricket matches, this is such a big area. How can you? help players improve when they're not when not playing for you in in this very short short tournament and if you can you can do that or you find a way of adding value to your to your players massively and therefore you're going to be better i think that is a huge area for d20 franchises around the world if they're serious about winning and um to really really focus on well uh tim this has been a lot of fun uh I think I think when I read the book, and I recommend uh, I'll, I'll recommend the book to ev- all the listeners, and I'll also uh, link the excerpt which came out in the Guardian uh, in, the, in the show notes. Uh, but you know, one of the th- the thing I got from this book was not just an a, a, a wonderful survey of of what it means to be you know the 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 best in the world at at your sport, but the very strangeness of being the best in the world at at your sports so that at how 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 far removed from our lives that kind of life is and that kind of excellence is, uh, and 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 there's something a little bit unsettling in that in that gap and then in the idea that that gap might be growing, uh, you know. So if if nothing else. Uh, that to 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 sort of get an insight into that, it's worth it's worth I think reading this book carefully. So thank you very much, Tim. Uh, thanks, Carl. Take care. That was that was great. Always a pleasure to chat.